Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, tell your friends about us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. Massive thank you as always to L for organizing our monthly reading groups and episode discussions, which you, dear listener, can join in too. Just head over to our Eventbrite page and the link is in the show notes. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. We have been facing a worldwide pandemic for the last several years. And one aspect of pandemic that hasn't really been discussed in, I think, honest detail has been the issue of long COVID, which follows the long history of issues that have gone hidden from larger societies, such as chronic Lyme and MECFS and all the potential long-term issues that can come from viral infections. And one of the major roadblocks that's happening to patients right now is in an attempt to get their physical symptoms addressed, constantly being told that their symptoms are a psychological symptom and not physiological. And this is often a serious issue because it delays treatment and it is further deterioration of the patients because this is not a new issue. This has been an issue that people with autoimmune disorders and all kinds of chronic um, physical issues have faced for a long time. So I think long COVID is bringing this much more to the surface in terms of society and medicine seriously needing to address these issues. And we have a wonderful guest here today. Dr. Asad Khan is joining us from the UK. Um, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's, it's a great honor and a privilege. I'm a respiratory physician, which in the US you would call a pulmonologist. I have been in medicine since, well, I've qualified in 1999 and have uh, been a specialist for the past 14 years. However, for the past Two years and three months, I haven't really been able to work. And that's because I contracted COVID whilst working on the front line due to inadequate PE and subsequently developed long COVID. So I've been quite sick with this condition and have found myself in the position of being a physician patient advocate for long COVID, but also for other invisible illnesses like the ones you alluded to. So yes, my life has changed and I think that's an understatement. But I feel in some senses that it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. And I know that might sound weird, but my eyes have really been opened to a world of suffering that I knew very little about, just like most other physicians. And I feel that there's a real opportunity here because of the sheer numbers affected by long COVID to really 
alter the narrative. And I, I hope to play a part in that. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's millions of people, isn't it? Just in the UK alone, from what I remember reading. Yeah, so 3% of the UK population. It is mad. There's very few illnesses where 3% of the population of a country are, are affected by it. I think the estimate globally was 144 million. That was the last figure I saw. And that was some months ago. So it's probably gone up since then. Make no mistake, this is the pandemic within the pandemic. And unfortunately, it remains below the radar for not just society in general, but also for physicians. And I still every day hear a story about some poor soul going to their doctor and the doctor saying that they've never heard of long COVID or they've heard about it, but they don't know anything about it, or they've heard about it, but they believe it's psychological or that there's no treatment or that it just gets better on its own. And none of those things are true. Yeah, that's wild. Is the the chances of getting COVID, in your case, for example, was it because you like had a massive sort of exposure load because you were on the front line with, like you said, crappy PPE, thanks Tory government? Or is it random? Is it like you can just get a mild thing and then long COVID is, can just happen? And that's a good point. I think the science is a bit conflicted on this. It would make sense that if you have a high viral load, you get a severe acute infection. However, there are people who have developed long COVID after a very mild illness. Mm. In fact, let me just rephrase this. If you have a severe acute illness, so you're hospitalized, etc., then you have a higher chance of going on to develop long COVID. However, because the vast majority of infections are mild, the overwhelming majority of people didn't go to hospital or weren't sick enough to go to hospital, the number of long COVID sufferers whose illness started with a mild infection far outweighs those who were very sick initially, if that makes sense. And within that mild group, there's actually a huge number of people who never displayed symptoms of acute COVID, so the asymptomatic people. So that is possible as well. I don't know what you make of a lot of the information that I've read about reinfections potentially increasing the risk of long COVID. Absolutely. Absolutely. They do increase. I think it's a 5% cumulative risk, according to one paper. So reinfections are no joke. And this whole narrative that began with Omicron is mild and that COVID is a flu is very misleading right. because even if you have a mild initial illness, that doesn't mean that the downstream consequences of that apparently mild acute illness may not be severe. And what we have no idea about the long-term consequences of COVID infection because it hasn't been around for decades and decades. But what we do know so far is not good. What we know is that there is an increase in lots of complications compared to people who didn't get the infection. So there was a study done in England and Wales, and it was a medical records-based study. And they looked back at the records of, I think it was several million people, and identified those who had, pardon me, who'd had coded as a diagnosis, and those who didn't have a COVID infection. And they found that in the week 
after the infection, the risk of developing a blood clot was 30 times higher in the group which had COVID infection as opposed to those who didn't. Now, blood clots can take several forms. They can exhibit themselves as a clot on the lung, which is also known as a pulmonary embolism. You can have a heart attack, you can have a stroke, you can have clots in your legs. So what was interesting in this study was that risk did diminish over time, but it was still present at 49 weeks to a lesser degree. Wow. Yes. And this has been borne out in several studies. Um, in the US, there was a huge veteran study. And again, same message. Even in people who had a mild infection, even people who otherwise had no underlying conditions, which is a phrase I've come to loathe, th there was an increased risk of heart attacks, strokes, pulmonary embolism several months down the line. And this is not just one or two papers. There, there are multiple multiple studies that have given the same signal. Right. So allowing ourselves, allowing our children to become reinfected over and over again with what is essentially a throtic vasculitis, which I will explain in a second, which is preventable, it's nothing short of criminal. I think some of the more persistent, I guess, misunderstandings about COVID is that people think of it as a respiratory illness. In terms of pathophysiology, it is more of a pretty serious endothelial infection. Yes, that is definitely the unifying pathological process. Now, obviously, there can be a discussion about how you get get to that point? Is right. it because of a cytokine storm? Is it because of the spike protein itself? Is it because there's viral persistence? Is it because of antibodies? But what we know is that in every patient with long COVID, where people have looked for microclots, or they've looked for evidence of endothelitis, or they've looked for hyperactivated platelets, every patient has them. So th this is why this is a thrombotic endothelitis. Endothelitis, for your listeners, if they're not aware, means infection of the inner lining of blood vessels. So when you get infection of that lining, then the blood vessels become leaky. They don't do their job properly. You can get reduced supply of oxygen and nutrients to the tissues anywhere in the body. Hence, the multiple manifestations of long COVID, it seems to affect every part of the body, but also you get clotting in the blood vessels, hence those clotting complications. So yes, I think at the beginning, this idea that it was a respiratory virus was, was gaining quite a bit of currency. And I, probably because people thought it was going to behave a bit like H1N1 or, uh, or the flu, but actually it's very different. It attaches to the ACE2 receptors, amongst mm -hmm. other receptors, and there are very few ACE2 receptors in the airways. There are lots in the mouth and in the nasal cavity and yeah. prides in the blood vessels. So that's how the virus finds its way to the blood vessels. It, you inhale it into the oral cavity. It attaches itself to the receptors there. And through the bloodstream, so from the blood vessels that drain the mouth, the veins that drain the mouth, it makes its way into the circulation and finds the receptors and other tissues and invades tissues that way. Right. To give a kind of a picture to the listening audience, an average adult has about 60,000 miles of blood vessels inside our bodies that becoming destabilized and inflamed from infection is a serious, <laughs> serious thing to consider. 
It's very serious. And when you think about it, you wonder why more people don't die with long COVID because it's everywhere. But then, and this is anecdote, a lot of people have reported that they're noticing an increased incidence of sudden death around them. So I just think people aren't making the connections and it's something that needs to be studied. But I suspect that a lot of these sudden deaths were preceded by a COVID infection. Certainly, there has been an increase, even if you forget about the COVID in the background, there's been an increase in the number of fatal heart attacks. And there was a paper that came out compared to pre-COVID. And that is, again, no accident. Yeah, I think in terms of like a wider sociological picture, there is so much fear and shame that is built up around disability in a lot of modern cultures, but especially in the US and UK. A friend of mine has dropped out of circulation and I got in touch with them and they're not feeling well. And they're like, after my third infection, I just haven't been able to get back to myself. But whatever you mentioned, long COVID, did people shut down and deny that's what's happening? I honestly think that there are a lot of people in denial. My circle of people is quite large. And within that, I know several individuals who clearly have long COVID, but will not accept it because of the stigma that you mentioned. Because it is seen as this mysterious illness that may have a degree of psychological causation to it, if not being purely psychological. So people don't want to be associated with it. And right. so, yeah, I think we are underestimating the numbers. That's interesting, isn't it? Because part of the rub in all of this is this sense that people aren't being believed by their doctor or whatever. But there's another, you're both highlighting another version, which is people don't even want to know. <laughs> people gaslight themselves. And there is that denial. And yes, obviously, the disbelief from doctors, from society, from family and friends. Uh, I tell you what, it's bad enough living with the illness, but to deal with that on top is just crushing. When you realized you had long COVID, has your sort of circle of, I guess, professional contemporaries believed you? What's that process been like? So that's a really good question. I don't want to winch too much because I think I am a senior physician and I do have connections and I am resourceful in that respect. But I have had my share of medical gaslighting. The worst one was when I developed a complication. I won't say which one it was because it might identify the person in question. Quite a distressing complication of, of long COVID, which actually drove me close to taking my life. Symptoms were so awful. They were impossible to live with. And I asked a colleague to see me urgently. And you would have thought that they'd have prioritized it because here's somebody who got it on the front line who's a colleague. And I was made to wait weeks and weeks. And when I saw them, despite this very obvious physical sign, so it wasn't as if this was an invisible complication, you could look at me and go, okay, he's got this. I was told that I was probably overperceiving my symptoms and it could be that they were stress-related. And, and I just my jaw dropped and I just thought if they can do this to me what hope has the average person who doesn't have medical knowledge got and I have found that my circle of friends and relatives has 
altered considerably. I think a lot of the people who have stood by me, and I think this is something that a lot of people may find it resonates with them. The people who stood by me are often not the people I thought be there. And some people whom I thought I could depend on, who would be understanding, who would be forgiving, who would be compassionate, they have been the ones who have kicked me in the teeth. And that's been quite an eye-opener. But you know what? I'm, I'm In a way, I'm glad because it's shown me who my people are. Yeah. Yeah, one of the aspects of health issues and chronic health issues and disability is the loss of social support of loss of friends, especially friends and family, is a major issue that people in this situation often face that isn't really talked about much. A lot of times people who are starting to face their chronic illness and trying to get care is facing like abandonment within their social circle, as well as being not believed by doctors and of, and that does lead to PTSD. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, there have been times when I've actually said to people, I wish I had cancer or I wish to chop my hand off. The amount of energy and effort, and we don't have much energy, it takes to explain to people that actually you are seriously ill. You might not look ill on the outside, but you have some distressing symptoms, which are very physical. I feel like a broken record doing this over and over again. A really good friend of mine, who should know better, said to me, I'm really worried that if you keep lying in bed, you're going to get physically and psychologically deconditioned. And I was just like, have you ever seen me lying in bed? Just for the heck of it. I, the difference is that we want to do stuff. We want to get up there and do our jobs and look after our children and socialize. But we just can't because we're just too sick. And some of the conditions associated with long COVID and ME and long Lyme, like POTS, for example, they just stop you getting up because your symptoms get so much worse. It makes sense that if you are having issues within the blood vessels, that there might be some issues being able to regulate things like blood pressure, heart rate, et cetera, et cetera. That makes being yeah, able to yeah. get up and walk around possible, right? Yeah, absolutely. The thing is the nerves have their own blood supply, a tiny blood vessels called the vasa nervorum. And the autonomic nervous system, which is your unconscious nervous system, which regulates your breathing and your digestion and your blood pressure and your pulse. So that, when it's deprived of its blood supply, it can't regulate these things. Hence, you get the swings in blood pressure, the really rapid heart rates, the slow digestion, all of these features. But because it's happening at such a almost microscopic level, the usual frontline tests come back unremarkable. And right. he hence, this sort of jump to, oh, it's psychological, which seems to be instant. So you do a few tests, and if whatever tests you're familiar with are okay, then it seems to be that the conclusion is that it's non-organic. And that is really lazy medicine. But unfortunately, it's rife. 
I think it's almost a culture. One aspect that a lot of people have talked about, whether it's autoimmune disorders or ME-CFS or now long COVID, is also like how expensive it is because a lot of times people have to, for example, in the UK, go through private channels to get the tests that they're wanting to get because it won't be run under the NHS or the American private health insurance system. So for a lot of people in order to access care, they're having to pay out a lot of money out of pocket, whether that is in different types of treatments. I know, I don't think the NHS for, I know you've talked about, is it aphoresis? And I know you've that's not covered under the NHS. No, it's not covered under the NHS. It's actually not available in the UK for this indication, even privately. I guess in my case, I ended up making my own diagnoses and working out what was wrong with me. So I worked out that I had POTS and that I had muscle activation syndrome. I could tell that I had issues with clotting. So I would just make appointments with specialists whom I knew had helped other sufferers with long COVID. And that's how I got investigated. If I'd gone through the usual system of being referred to an NHS specialist and waiting for them to assess me and give me the right treatment, then I would have got nowhere. I actually don't think I would have been alive. But there is another aspect to this in that, yes, uh, there are specialized investigations that do reveal abnormalities, but there is a lot of stuff that is easily treatable without expensive investigations. Say, for example, in the context of long COVID or in ME-CFS, a lot of people have this postural tachycardia syndrome. All you need to do is listen to the patient. And if they say that they get a number of symptoms, such as heart racing, nausea, lightheadedness, which are worse on standing up, you've got your diagnosis and you can confirm it with a simple office test where you just measure these things lying down and standing up. Similarly, muscle activation syndrome, it's all in the history. The patient will say that I get these sudden episodes of wheezing, of burning during passing urine, of uh, of rashes, and and they come and go, and they may have certain triggers, and that is treatable with antihistamines. So there's a lot that we can do before we get to the point of extensive investigations that can significantly reduce the symptom burden because the symptoms are so awful. But unfortunately, we found ourselves in this position in the UK, in particular, I think, where if something hasn't been through 20 randomized controls, trials and you can't do it. And the immediate response is, oh, there's no evidence. And I take great offense to that because randomized controlled trials are only one kind of evidence. And before we had evidence-based medicine in its current form, you used to have a discussion with your patient and say, okay, there's no consensus on what the best treatment for this condition is, but I know that Such and such a drug has helped some patients of mine. Here are the benefits. Here are the risks. How about we give it a go? Right. Informed consent consent and a risk-benefit ratio discussion. Now, clearly for relatively safe drugs like antihistamines, that's a no-brainer. But people are still struggling to get that. Obviously, if it's a, shall we say, more toxic drug potentially like anticoagulation, then you might not make that decision that easily. But this slavish adherence to 
guidelines and evidence completely misses the point that there is very little benefit in doing nothing. Right. And, and it means that patients go without care, ultimately, that they're not treated. Absolutely. Is, is, Absolutely. As, and they deteriorate, not just that they go without care, but that they deteriorate while there is not, there is no benefit to making people not at least addressing some of their physical con- symptoms and doing something about it. Yes, and they become bedbound, and they be- then they will become deconditioned if they weren't before, and the disease gets more and more entrenched and complex and harder to treat. It's it's mad. So long COVID, if people are being told, "Oh, this is just psychological," when obviously there's all these issues that are very real, I'm wondering how you personally navigated or navigate given that you at one point felt suicidal, were there actual psychological things that you did for yourself that kept you buoyant and helped you get through the things that you've gone through? I had a really good GP, I was lucky in that, who believed me. My GP was limited in what they could do to help, but the fact that they believed me really was a blessing. And the fact that they would say, I don't know, but I'm going to try really hard to find out. But they were limited by the quality of specialists around them, unfortunately. Or shall I say by the lack of curiosity of the specialists around them. But personally, what I found really useful was a number of things. And this is the point where a lot of people get really cross and say that I'm suggesting that mind-body techniques can help. I'm not suggesting that. All I'm saying is, if you modulate your autonomic nervous system using certain techniques, then your symptoms uh, will decrease in severity. So I used right. mindfulness, I used visualizations, I used breath work, I used vagus nerve stimulation maneuvers, and I was able to really reduce the symptoms of tachycardia and the temperature dysregulation and the sense of impending doom. I'm not saying that this will always work or that this will work for everyone, but in my case, I am so glad that somebody introduced me to those techniques because they kept me going. My idea of pacing was basically I do, at my worst, I would be able to do 15 to 20 minutes of activity, which might be talking to someone or looking at a screen. And then I would have to lie down and do breath work or meditation for another 10 minutes. And such uh, such was my day. The cycle just repeated. And that that kept me going. And I highly recommend it to other people. And Because not everything that's going to alter your physiology has to be a pill. When you do breath work or when you do meditation, you're actually altering things like the level of carbon dioxide in your blood. You're altering the balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic parts of your autonomic nervous system. So you're trying to move from fight or flight into rest, digest, and breathe. This is physiology. It's not in your head. And the reason I make this point is because, understandably, the MECFS community over the years have been quite scarred by psychologization. So any suggestion that sort of non-medical or sort of complementary maneuvers may have a role, sometimes isn't received very positively. But what I'm saying is not that these are, this is psychological treatment. I'm just saying this is physical treatment, but it's just right. not a pill. Right. It's kind of physical therapy for your nervous system. 
one of the things that that I think people often get scarred by is that these things are presented as cures when they are more complementary symptom management. Right? Yeah, no, I agree with you totally. Yeah, yeah, totally. They're not cures. No, they're not cures. Until I went to Germany to have specialized treatment to get the clots washed out and went on to anticoagulation, I didn't really get a lot better. I just stayed afloat using these techniques. But I do think that if I hadn't used them, I'd have got a lot worse. But even now, not cured. I'm much improved in that I have some kind of life back, but I'm still quite limited. Yeah, the lack of curiosity thing is fascinating because that's come up before in the sort of mental health conversations? It's an affliction. I think I need to give the listeners maybe a bit of background about what medical education is actually and what the whole system within which we work makes you do. Or obviously long COVID is new, so it's not taught. But say, for example, POTS is hardly mentioned in the medical curriculum, even though it's quite common. ME-CFS, despite being so debilitating and having a worse quality of life than many cancers barely gets a mention even then it's presented as this controversial condition where mm, we're not quite sure whether it's physical or psychological there's no mention of things like post-exertional symptom exacerbation or post-exertional malaise or the sort of stimulus hypersensitivity that these patients get which are really crucial to be aware of if you get a patient with this condition. Muscle activation syndrome, I had never heard of it until I got it myself. And I've been a doctor how long? We are just not taught this stuff. And yes, even if you're not taught, one should remain curious and forever learning. But we work within a system that rewards where the whole emphasis is on processing patients rather than really delving deep. So it's exclude and reassure. Somebody comes with a chest pain, rather than going, what really is happening with this person's chest pain? Let's exclude a heart attack and a pulmonary embolism. And as long as it's not that, you can go home and it doesn't really matter what it is. Now, the patient could still be in severe pain, but that is the system we work within. And I don't think the patients realize this. And it doesn't lend itself to that uh, in-depth inquiry and that curiosity. And because if you hang on to patients and if you try and work out what's going on with them, then you get labeled inefficient. It's an example of like the systemic incuriosity that sometimes happens. I knew somebody that had really severe anxiety and somebody with really severe anxiety is often feels is this tightness, this burning, this pain in the chest region. And every time he would go to his doctor, they'd go, oh, that's just anxiety. And he actually ended up mentioning his anxiety when he went to a friend. And a friend was going through medical school and she was just like, you should talk to my supervisor. The guy ended up being a GI guy that treats a lot of anxiety. And it was just like, oh yeah, your anxiety exacerbates like acid reflux and you really need to get your acid reflux and treat it. Oh. Okay. Right, but all these years, like doctors were just like, oh, that's just anxiety here. Yeah, no. yeah. I think also there's another aspect to this, that when people's symptoms get dismissed as just anxiety or just depression, it's doing the people who experience anxiety and depression a great disservice because these are very disabling conditions in their own right. And and can't minimize the suffering that occurs due to these diagnoses. So not only 
is it disrespectful to those people? But also, is taking resources away from people who really need it by making people who have serious organic pathology go to psychiatrists and psychologists and go to rehabilitation is diverting resources away from people who are seriously mentally ill, who right. could really do with seeing those people. The wait times for seeing mental health services in the UK, particularly for children, are ridiculous. In some areas, there is basically no service because the demand is so high. And yet we still right. persist with this nonsense of offering psychological treatments to physically ill people. You wouldn't do that to somebody who, say, had lung cancer. You, the first thing wouldn't be, oh, I think you should get up and exercise and should go and see a therapist. Yes, those things may have a role in supporting the patient. But that's not the first thing you would say to them. Yeah, it's a really good point. And also just that phrase, it's just psychological. It's like, that's consciousness. That's life. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I'm having this experience. Yeah. I'm trying to communicate an experience. And you're telling me right. it's minimizing your experience, basically, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think at the root of this is that we should always believe our patients. If we're not going to do that, we have to have very firm grounds not to do that. It should be the last resort. The patient's experience is, like you said, it's patient's experience. It's real for them. They are feeling what they're feeling. If they say, feel I can't take a deep enough breath, then just because that's not described in a textbook doesn't mean that the patient isn't feeling their breathlessness that way. When it comes to like mental health services, it's also when you're telling patients that their physical symptoms are psychological, there is a missed element of care in that you are unable to care for their PTSD. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and give them proper support that comes with the stress of having a chronic illness. Yes. Because it's very stressful, right? That they yes. need that kind of support of just being able to understand how stressful and how distressful and the social isolation and everything else that comes from having a chronic illness and getting support in that area. In, instead, they're like gaslit and told that yeah. their symptoms yeah. are psychological. Yeah, and I'm yet to meet somebody with a complex, poorly understood illness who doesn't have medical trauma. I think right. this PTSD is rife. I have it myself. There was a stage where you know, I couldn't bear the thought of seeing another professional. I remember that I, I got this appointment, and when I opened the letter, just the thought that I was going to have to go and explain myself and justify the physical nature of my symptoms, it, it caused me to shake uncontrollably and cry. And I just thought, oh, this is not me. But it just shows how devastating not being believed can be, that it can result in PTSD. If I'm in the environment where I experience certain symptoms, which went untreated for days and days, because nobody knew what to do with them or nobody was willing to offer symptomatic treatment. And if I go to that same room where I had those symptoms, they come back. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the major issues, I think, that's a wider picture of public health and especially in the United States. A lot of people end up being financially terrorized by the thought of seeing doctors, which kind of understandably ends up developing a severe distrust of doctors and the medical system because the medical system can financially ruin you. Yeah. It's hard yeah. to trust. Those kinds of background issues of whether it's with chronic illness or whether it's with from financial 
financial distress of developing distrust for the medical system also is one of the bigger unsaid parts of why public health is so hard to do in certain countries. Yes, absolutely. And luckily, we don't have that aspect of the the financial aspect in the UK, but it's coming. The way the NHS is going at the moment, it's going to happen because are just not safe at the moment because of years and years of underfunding um, by successive governments, particularly this one. I think it's intent on destroying what is basically the UK's closest equivalent of religion, which is the National Health Service. And it's awful because in principle, it is the best health service in the world, in theory. But it's just been underfunded and abused over the years and to the extent now where proper care just can't be delivered, even basic care. Yeah, and I think actually what you were saying earlier on that if you care, you're deemed inefficient. And so it reveals the kind of madness of, A, the sort of medical system, but just the wider political economic system, that if you don't have something that is there for the benefit of the citizen's health, like what's the point in having an economy if it's not for people, right? David Graeber's got this whole thing about that, which is that really we should be heading towards a direction that care is the sort of central focus under which everything revolves around. But like you say, that's direct opposition to systems that require efficiency as their sort of super goal. Yeah. Within the the context of medicine, I would say it's uh, it's tick-box medicine. It's it's not proper, thoughtful clinical inquiry. And and for these... Conditions in particular, I mean, for any condition, but in particular for these conditions, you need that individualization of care because the conditions are so complex and people present so differently. And one person might have one particular major issue, another one might have a completely different issue whilst having the same diagnosis, that you really do need to drill down to what it is that is affecting this particular person and how do we best deal with their symptoms. And that takes time. You can't do it in 10 minutes or half an hour, or I think one hour, you've got some chance of getting somewhere with a long COVID or ME-CFS patient. But uh, who's got that time? That's why people can go private. This is, again, like anecdotal comment that I read, but there was one lady after her COVID infection, and this was very early on, this was before the vaccines came out, she was one of the first people to get COVID and a young lady in her 20s. Uh, she got a severe shingles infection after mm-hmm. her the recovery. And, and it was one of those things where she was just like, oh, at that point when COVID was still new, people like young people getting shingles was considered kind of alarming by a lot of doctors. Yeah. And she was commenting that like now when she mentions it to like a GP, they don't even inquire anymore. They just shrug their shoulders and go, it happens sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Rather than going, this is serious and it shows that the COVID has likely affected your immune system, which is basically what's going on. I think there's this, like I said, the system breeds mediocrity. So there's this acceptance of things that are quite serious, such as the the infections that young people shouldn't be getting or young and otherwise people shouldn't be getting, the 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 huge increase in cardiovascular problems, the fact that this is happening to our children have endothelium as well. So we'll be developing premature cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease and diabetes and all these problems. And we're just letting it happen when actually, if we ventilated indoor public spaces, 
sanitize yeah clean air just like clean water right yeah it should be no different from clean water yet we have this bizarre spectacle of pediatricians in the uk speaking out against masking and over masking has become very political anyway even speaking out against ventilation yeah yeah that's, Uh, that's been a wild turn of unexpected like i did not expect some of the comments that I've seen from medical professionals against clean air. That was a surprise because that would have serious benefits, not just for COVID. It would help with any other airborne seasonal infections. It would help with allergies. It would help with so many things. Potential prevention. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah. Total no-brainer. But to speak out against that, what is your job? Isn't your job to promote health? What are the disadvantages of ventilation? Name me one. And there's classroom performance as well. If you have, if you control the carbon dioxide levels, it goes up. There's evidence to that effect. So it's just, it's such an obvious thing to do. It's interesting because, you know, how a lot of people are presenting the anti-cleaner argument is that it's just extreme paranoia. No, it's not extreme paranoia. I think we can't be paranoid enough about this virus. Never mind all the other all the other benefits of clean air. We've got an airborne, highly contagious virus that causes a thrombotic endothelitis that is resulting in heart attacks, clots on the lung, diabetes, cognitive impairment, and we need to be a lot more afraid of it and right. give it the respect it deserves. Yeah, the, the parallel is cholera and the modern sewage system, right? particularly in, Absolutely. in London, back, yeah. historically speaking. And it's the same thing. It's like in these in conversations with people who have doubts about this, it's, yeah, the modern sewage system is amazing. And HEPA filters <laughs> are equally doing the same thing. They are cleaning the air. You don't need like dirty right. air to make your immune system stronger or something. That's not how it works. You need clean to yeah. better. You get dirty air walking around in public. This is specific to indoor spaces, right? We're not trying to HEPA filter outside air. Right. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, if there was any benefit to dirty air, you'd get it that way. Instead, you get certain pediatricians talking about immunity debt, which is just completely made up. There's no such thing. Uh, no. You know, there is no benefit to getting repeated reinfections with, with vascular viruses. It's nonsense. And yet they talk about immunity debt uh, and they attribute the current issues that are coming to the surface in children to a lockdown that happened. How long ago was it now? Two years, something like that. So for a few weeks. So apparently that's responsible for everything (laughs) rather than actually it's the virus that has weakened the immune system which is making you more prone to getting your RSV and your flu and your other viruses. That is the more logical explanation. That's what you expect of a scientist. It's also one of those things where if you've been sick, you're going to be prone to more sicknesses, generally speaking, because your body is weakened, right? For fighting the initial infections. So it's one of those things Uh, where... Yeah. Honestly, I think sometimes that there's an agenda here to minimize. People aren't curious. They don't think about things in a scientific way. They just explain things away as not important or not significant or as psychological. And I just don't know 
why. I don't know why people go into this profession if that is going to be their attitude, but maybe it is this system that conditions them that way. I think to a certain degree, people living, the people that are alive now, at least especially in the developed countries, the only thing that like really scared people for a long time was things like cancer or even heart disease. People were just like high blood pressure. Oh, I'll just take statins. I'll just take blood pressure medication and I'll be fine. These were things that used to like lead to very serious things that are casualized now in a certain yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. ultimately, like people got into this mindset that modern medicine will cure everything. Yeah, and w- that was never the intention of modern medicine. We'd lovely if we could do that. But there's very few diseases that we can actually cure. Mostly it's about control and amelioration. The impression that I get from talking to a lot of people is that they really can't wrap their head around not having a nice, easy technological fix. To yeah, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I agree. I know mean, it needs to be neat and tidy and something that you just pop a pill for. And I think also ableism plays into this. So, sickness, sickness, or the idea of having an illness, or the possibility that you might develop something that could disable you, people don't want to know because they associate that with not being useful, not being productive, not being efficient. And obviously, your value is measured by these things, according to society. So just rather not know. There is a still very strong current in society about disability being malingering. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think uh, particularly if the disability is episodic. So I'll give you an example. I use a wheelchair, but I don't need it for a short distance because I just don't need it. When the looks people give you when you get to the aircraft door and get out of the wheelchair and walk down the aisle, they're very telling. It's, it's not a binary thing. You're not always in a wheelchair or not in one, but they don't, yeah, they people are very unforgiving when it comes to this. It's one of those things where ultimately, if you're vulnerable, you are much more subject to people's prejudices. Yeah, absolutely. And people look at you differently, totally. Yeah. And people, I think, shall we, I've got to be careful what I say here, but it's as if you're worthless almost. Yeah, um, yeah. Because you can't do the things that you were able to do before. So for me, my job was very hands-on. It was long ward rounds, clinics, on calls in respiratory medicine, which is a very sort of acute specialty. You're there, you're assessing lots and lots of really sick people. And it's ironic that I got this on a COVID ward where it was an acute respiratory COVID ward, 28 patients every day, really sick, on oxygen, going to ICU or dying and supporting them, their families, because we had to be the family because these that was the, those were the days of FaceTime goodbyes and supporting the juniors and the nurses. So... There is no way I could do that now. And I don't know when that might be possible, if at all. But I just get the sense that there is this expectation that if you can't deliver what you're delivering before, then you're just not good enough. That's really harsh. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that you were at the coalface like that as well is... I remember just the news reports at the time and it all just being really upsetting from this distance, let alone actually yeah. being... Yeah. Right there. It, it was a lot. I'm pretty resilient, but everybody's got their limits. But there were juniors who had been graduated from their fifth year in med school just so that they could help. So they had never seen any other kind of medicine. And uh, to them, this was medicine, this pandemic. 
and uh, this was their first job. Uh, it was a really hard time for them and for everyone else. And obviously, for, f- because we were mostly in one place and nobody was traveling anywhere, people weren't seeing their families, and they were just dealing with this hell day in and day out. A lot of people got really badly psychically affected and traumatized. It struck me the other day that, unless I'm missing something, that it's strange that we don't have uh, almost like a memorial dem in the same way that we do for the world wars, that we don't yeah, have a day yeah. to register that COVID happened, that as a nation, obviously this was a global thing, but as a nation, we experienced this thing and a huge number of people died and a huge number of people have been affected by it. But and yeah. it seems strange that there isn't like a day of sort of recognition for that. And then I was like, yeah. that ties in with the sort of denial stuff, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think denial is a policy, isn't it? There right. isn't a problem. Because if you were to admit that there is an ongoing issue with infections, reinfections, long COVID, then that would underline the need for mitigation. And nobody wants mitigations. Nobody wants to talk about ventilation, never mind masking or anything else. We don't have the worldwide Remembrance Day for the big flu pandemics that have happened, right? Like people Mm -hmm. completely memory hold the 1918 flu until very recently. Because there is still this kind of idea that like, oh, if you die of this kind of sickness, you were going to die sooner or later anyway oh some sort of sick darwinian type mindset yeah absolutely this whole idea that somehow because you've got an underlying condition your your life might be worth less it's it's vulgar and anything can be an underlying condition if you've got a bit of blood pressure that's an underlying condition and it doesn't matter how many you've got everybody's life is still valuable and that's a point society right exactly exactly you know we're not Hopefully, we're not in eugenics land yet, although sometimes it does feel like it the way people have these conversations. But mm-hmm. even if one was to use that argument about underlying conditions, so many people got it who didn't have any. And it's also, I think, one of the more less talked about the surprising tidbits that I've heard about COVID is how much like oral dental health is a high risk factor. Yes, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I was hoping to come to that. And yeah, there is a direct relationship between how good your dental health is and various outcomes, including mortality. And people don't know this. The best thing people can do when they get a COVID infection or reinfection is look after their oral cavity. So use a mouthwash. Now, the name escapes me, but if you go look up Dr. Graham Lloyd-Jones on Twitter, he's done a number of videos about this. And it all boils down to the way the disease is transmitted. The, there's the millions and millions of copies of the virus in a teaspoon of saliva. So if you sterilize the saliva and the oral cavity, then the number of viral particles that go into your bloodstream and to other parts of the body is going to be reduced. So stop yes. it at its source. One one random question. I know that one of the major issues with long COVID, a lot of people decompensate after vaccination. So they're no longer able to vaccinate, including like other vaccinations like yeah. flu and whatnot. And I think this is one of the less talked about, like the snowball issues yeah. of yeah. allowing this infection yeah. to spread. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know if um, you had any kind of suggestion. Vaccine injury is not a new thing. What is a vaccine? It's a drug. And yeah. all drugs have adverse effects. Paracetamol, right. which you can just buy in the supermarket, 
even though it's an innocuous drug in the most part, if you overdose on it or if you've got certain underlying conditions like liver problems, then it, it can even be fatal. So vaccines are no different. I mean, for the most part, they have been a great boon to humanity, but there will be some people where things will go wrong. And vaccine injury is not new. It's happened with other vaccines. Right. And clearly with the COVID vaccines, it is. And it seems like there's a lot of it, but that could just be because so many people have been vaccinated at once. But then that shouldn't stop us from thinking and going so this is happening. Lots of people are reporting this. Let's try and understand whether there's a susceptibility here. And let's try and understand if there is something about the vaccines themselves that we could improve so that right. few people get adverse effects. But we just can't have that discussion without being labelled anti-vax. People who got vaccine injury are not anti-vax. They went and had the vaccine. They did right. their civic duty. So this whole labelling is just nonsense. Right. But very polarising discussion. So you're either in the camp where vaccines can do no harm, they're God's gift, or you're anti-vax. And there's nothing in between. And I think we need a bit more nuance than that, because this right. is a real issue. And you know, if you think having long COVID stigma is bad, then having vaccine injury stigma is just another level. These right. people have nothing. But I know leave. people that, are, that have vaccine injuries that now have long COVID. Yeah, so yeah, they have yeah. both. Yeah. And they're just, and some of their accounting has been really heartbreaking. But also, a lot of long COVID people now are like, okay, like it doesn't seem like we can't vaccinate anymore. And that's a problem. Yeah, it's a tricky one. There's different studies which uh, have shown different results. And some suggested that there was no effect um, of, of vaccination on long COVID. Some suggested that. Uh, People got worse or more people got worse and better. So there's conflicting signals. But to me, I think it makes sense as a physician if somebody came to me and said, I took that vaccination and that vaccination made things worse, that I would be advising them not to have that particular one. It's just like oh, I took aspirin and I ended up with an asthma attack. Well, you won't tell that person to go take another aspirin, would you? So I think at the very basic level, we need to be listening to our patients' experiences and going, okay, that thing clearly harmed you in a significant way. I'm not talking about minor adverse effects, talking about something quite significant like the long COVID got a lot worse. Then I think we need to be tailoring our advice according to how the patient responded. So yeah, for the most part, vaccines are great, but we need to be continuously listening to our patients, recording these adverse events, honestly, not stigmatizing people who are vaccine injured and trying to develop better vaccines because we can always improve. That's the, And every drug has patients a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to you about the vaccine causing long COVID or appearing to cause long COVID, I think there's a plausible explanation for this in that the spike protein is the main kind of thought to be the main pathological part of the virus. And the vaccines obviously, they either contain or they cause the body to produce the spike protein. So in the same way that somebody who was going to develop long COVID reacts to the spike protein from the virus, certain people may react to the spike protein from the vaccine in the same way. Right. Um, and develop similar symptoms. So in my case, right. I got long COVID from the virus. But then when I had my Pfizer vaccine, I got a whole host of new symptoms. Now, most people obviously were completely fine with the vaccine, but I got a whole host of new symptoms. So I only had that one vaccine. I didn't have another one. And that seems fairly, it seems fairly common from what I've seen in long COVID communities yeah. that people with yeah. long COVID are having now having issues with future vaccinations. I think it's commoner than we 
think or yeah. would like to admit? Because I there was one per, with long COVID where she was just like, yeah, I recently went to get the flu vaccine and that set me back. I was bed bound for six weeks, which is pretty significant. It is significant. No, you wouldn't want to do that over and over over again, would you? No, I think we need an open, honest discussion about vaccine injuries without getting into this polarized fight over which camp you're in. We're adults. We should be able to talk about that. I think it's important because it's a way to improve the products that we have. Yeah, 100%. Okay. I think we should wrap it up in respect for your time and energy as well. And uh, thank you very much for coming on and talking to us. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmas, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker, and Sean Venado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And if you want to hear even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Interview personal update on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.